Let's turn to Matthew 9, and we'll continue our studies in this gospel. I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you that Jesus was a very controversial figure. He was always uh, stirring up trouble wherever he went. He certainly was a controversialist in terms of his debates with uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. But uh, he was controversial in other ways. He was always doing things that upset people. He, he, he challenged conventions and, and established procedures, uh, not because he was simply a rebel who went around causing trouble, but because there were certain forms and structures that were inhibiting the life of the Spirit. And so he always felt free to challenge those forms and traditions and conventional ways of doing things if they kept God from working in, in power. And that's why he was always in trouble. And we'll see an a couple of instances of that sort of thing in, in chapter 9. Let's begin reading with uh, verse 1. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went to his home. And when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God, who had given such authority. To men. Jesus' most recent convert, as you know, was the, was the demonized man whose story we told uh, last week, the man from whom he cast out a legion of, of demons. And uh, then Jesus got back into the boat, and without any further ministry in, in Decapolis, the ten cities on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he rode back across the boat with his, uh, back across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples to Capernaum, his uh, hometown. And went into his house, and he began, apparently, to teach the scriptures to people in his own home. He was unable to go out in the streets, because uh, wherever he went, a crowd followed him. and It was impossible for him to teach and, and train the disciples. And so he withdrew into a more private place where he could, could uh, be uh, free from some of the crowds. Now, Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us the whole story. You have to to read the other gospel accounts, the parallel accounts, to understand what happened. But as Jesus announced his text, there was this uh, cracking sound overhead, and a pick came through the roof, and plaster started to cascade into the roof, and everybody said, what in the world is going on? And, and they looked up through this enormous hole that was being chopped in the roof of the house, and suddenly they saw five or four heads looking down through the hole, and they lowered a man on a litter into Jesus' presence. I, I wish I could have been there to see it. You know, this really was a very humorous thing. The uh, gospel account is very factual, and I think we miss some of the humor. And men being what they are in any age, I can imagine these men were just having the greatest time of their life, hacking up this ceiling. What in the world is Charlie going to think? I hope he's covered by a homeowner's policy. And you know, the straw and the plaster and the tiles were falling down into the room on everybody's head, and I think the Lord was was enjoying the whole thing immensely, but not the Pharisees. They were uptight about the whole proceeding. This sort of thing just isn't done. 
But uh, the Lord didn't care. He, it, it always excited him to see this sort of faith, this sort of uninhibited giving of yourself, not worrying about whether people disapprove, not being concerned about what conventions you violate. See, these men really loved their friend. We don't know what, what sort of relationship they had with this man, but he's described as a friend, and he was a paralytic, and they were concerned about his case, and, and they brought him to the house where the Lord was teaching, but they couldn't get in the, in the room. There were people looking in the windows and crowding around the doors and all around the front of the house, and they couldn't get the man into, the, into Jesus' presence. And so they said, ah, let's go up on the roof and knock a hole in the roof. So they go up the stairs, and you know, and these Palestinian houses are flat-topped, and it was easy to break the tiles up and get down through the thatch and break through the ceiling and lower the man into Jesus' presence. And I, the Lord just thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing because their love transcended convention. They, they didn't care what people thought or who disapproved, even the owner of the house. They were concerned about their friend, and they wanted to get him into the Lord's presence, no matter what it cost them. The gospel writer is telling us that Jesus, seeing their faith, that kind of gopher-broke faith, said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the place just came unglued. The Pharisees said, That's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? Now, let me sketch in the background a little bit so you understand the theology of the people that made that statement. In the Old Testament, you have a promise that if God's people obeyed God, they kept the law, then none of these diseases, that is, the diseases that struck down the Egyptians, he said, will overtake you. Now, that promise is a very general promise applied to the nation as a whole. The point of that promise is that that disease like the disease that plagued the Egyptians, that destroyed the Egyptian nation or a good portion of it, would never strike Israel. It's not a promise that individuals within the nation would, wouldn't become ill. It's that in general they would be a healthy people if they obeyed God. But the Jews of Jesus' day had applied that to the individual with a vengeance. They believed that every sickness was caused by a specific sin. Behind every sickness lurked one sin that they could identify, and they had a list of these things. If you died in childbirth, you had violated the Sabbath somewhere along the line. If you contracted leprosy, it was because you were guilty of blasphemy. See, And you can imagine what guilt this would pile on people. If you came down with a common cold, your immediate thought would be, what did I do? And they believed that uh, it was necessary to atone for sins, that God would never forgive sins unless they suffered for their sin. And so the sickness was a way of suffering and thus atoning for their sin. And as Jesus says in another place, you have piled burdens upon people's backs which you will not with one finger attempt to, to lift. You see, people lived under this crushing, terrible load of guilt. And here this poor man on this pallet believed that it was because of some sin which he or his father had committed, or mother, that he was, he was so afflicted. And Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes say, Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, knowing their heart, says, Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your pallet and walk. 
Now, that statement is variously interpreted, interpreted, but my understanding of it is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's an untestable statement. How can you check that out? How would you authenticate that? How would you know if I say to you your sins are forgiven? No one can know. It's easy to say that. The harder thing to say is get up and walk. And so Jesus says, so that you will know that I have authority to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And the man got up, picked up his pallet, and walked out of the house. And the scribes had nothing to say. You see, their own argument had defeated them. Because they argued this way. That man will lie on that pallet until God forgives him of his sin. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And the man got up and walked out. And therefore, Jesus must have the power to forgive sins. You see, he had them. And there wasn't a thing they could say. Now, that's where we begin in this story, with this understanding that Jesus and Jesus alone has power to forgive sin. There's no other religion that can do anything for your sin. Oh, it may explain away sin. Or it may give you some steps, some things to do, some procedures by which you can atone for your own sin, but all of us know that's an impossible task. Only Jesus can lift the burden of sin. But in order to lift the burden of sin, you see, the Lord has to be where sinners are. He has to go where they are. He has to declare forgiveness to, to sinners, and that sets the, the stage for the rest of, of the chapter. Verse 9, And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. The scribes and Pharisees get another jolt. Matthew gets saved. Matthew was a notorious sinner. Everyone in town knew him. He was a publican. That is, he dealt with public funds. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors then were no better liked than they are today, except for a different reason. They were considered traitors to their own people. They were quizzlings. They'd sold out. They were uh, exacting money from their own people in the service of Rome. They weren't paid a salary. The Roman government told them how much taxation was expected from a particular district, the amount of money that they had to turn in, and anything above that was theirs to keep. And, and there was no just set of tax laws. You could impose any taxes you wanted to on any articles. And so they taxed the people to death. They just bled them white. And the people hated them because they served themselves at the expense of their own people. Now, if you think for a moment, you can think of a modern-day counterpart. I was trying to think all week of something that uh, would be analogous to our situation today because we don't dislike tax collectors quite to that extent today. Who can you think of who gains his, his wealth by using immoral means? He operates within the law. It's legal, but it's immoral. Who can you think of who is universally despised by the religious community? And you know what occurred to me? Purveyors of pornography. People who, uh, who uh, produce pornographic films, pornographic literature. People who run adult bookstores, so-called. That would be uh, the present-day analog. How would you feel 
if uh, someone who owned a, a pornographic magazine or ran one of these shops down in Garden Valley moved in next door to you, how would you react to them? Now, that is precisely what Matthew was. That's the way he was regarded. The Jews had already excommunicated him. Tax collectors were barred from the synagogue. They had committed the unpardonable sin. There was no forgiveness for a tax collector. They were outside. They were pariahs. They were dogs. They were treated like the Gentiles. They were universally hated and despised. No one would talk to them. The only people that they had any social... Uh, uh, activity with was their own kind and those that were worse than they. And they would be very much like the purveyors of, of pornographic literature today. And how would you feel if one of them moved next door to you? Well, the Lord came by Matthew's establishment one day. They knew each other, by the way. They, Jesus had lived in Capernaum for some time. This wasn't Jesus' first contact with Matthew. Capernaum is a very small town. And he must have listened to Jesus. He may have even been in the room when the man and his friends broke through the roof. He knew Jesus well. So the Lord walked by his adult bookstore one day, and there was Matthew with his suede jacket and his gold chain and Gucci loafers leaning against the wall. <clears throat> and the Lord said, Matthew, haven't you had enough of this? I, I know your heart. I know how empty you are. I know how dissatisfied you are. I know how you hurt. Follow me. And Matthew looked inside his establishment at his $200,000 inventory, and he saw his $100,000 income fly out the window and his penthouse apartment and all the rest of it. And he went in and got his clothes signed, and he hung it on the door, and he padlocked the door, and he walked away from that place, and he never went back. We know because he's the one who wrote this gospel. Now, how would you react to someone like that? How would I? I suppose there are a couple of reactions we would have. We might say, not me. No way, Jose. I'm not getting involved with that guy. After all, I have my testimony to think about. What would people think if I took Matthew out to lunch? What would they think of me? You know, that was the last thing that Jesus thought about. He really never cared what people thought about him. He wasn't implicated in, in Matthew's sin, but he loved Matthew. And he spent time with Matthew. He was, as you know, the friend of sinners. And that was not a complimentary personal reference. That was a derogatory reference. He's the friend of sinners. He's a glutton and a drunk, they said, because he eats and drinks with sinners and with publicans. He didn't care what people thought. He went where the need was. He spent his time with people like that. Oh, not exclusively, but a good proportion of his time was spent with people that had already been ostracized by the religious community. They were on the outside. They were, they were goners. Nobody cared about them any longer, but Jesus did. That might be one attitude we'd have, not me, but another one might be not him. There's no way that Matthew would come around. Why, that man is so deeply entrenched in his wickedness. He wouldn't care to hear the gospel. He's not hurting. He doesn't have any need for the gospel. 
You know, Paul tells us to redeem the time because the days are evil. And as I've commented before, we often read that as though it says redeem the time because the days are short. But that's not what Jesus says or what Paul says. He says to redeem the time because the days are evil. And as men become more wicked and more evil, the more desperate their condition becomes and the more they see their need of a Savior. Because since, and, and, and therefore, just because someone is wicked doesn't mean they don't have a need and don't recognize their need. I have a good friend. Steve Newman also knows him. His name is Eric Sigrid. He was raised in uh, New York City. had very wealthy parents. They saw to it that he had the very best in life. He went to Harvard, graduated from Harvard back in the 60s. Went to Cambridge to do graduate studies. After he got out of Cambridge, he bought a motorcycle and toured Europe and the United States and and he's just the wildest looking guy you ever saw. Long hair, big, bushy black beard. And he'd ride through town in his full set of leathers. And he'd get off of his bike and people would just stare at him. And Eric said, I used to think, hey, I'm just my mother's little boy, Eric. Would somebody please talk to me? But he just happens to be one of these very formidable looking men and nobody would have anything to do with him. And he traveled across the United States and eventually made his way uh, to California. And he was—he got a job at at a university there as a coach. That's where I first met him. And uh, just the strangest, far-out guy you ever saw. He was into every kind of Eastern religion you could imagine, and and seemed to have no interest whatever in the Lord. And he told me later that that he had a recurring dream, and that he was in a cave. And he was looking for the light at the end of the cave, and he couldn't find it. And he found a man in the cave who said, uh, you'll find the light if you keep looking for it, but watch out for the sandman, because if the sandman meets you, he'll throw sand in your eyes, and you'll never find the light. And so all through his life, he kept looking for the light, and he, he couldn't find it. He looked everywhere. And when I, when I got to know him, he was in this cosmic consciousness group, this strange Eastern cult. And, they wore purple robes and in this long, he had this long hair down his back and big, just a weird guy. He had a friend named Timothy English, who was not at all a Christian, who said, Eric, you know, I think you've tried everything. Why don't you read the Bible? And Eric read the Bible and met the Lord. And he was sitting in this group as they were gathered around their little pot of incense and one day and, and, he got up and he said, you know what? He said this out loud to the group. This is a bunch of baloney, he said. And he walked out. And that's when he says he gave his heart to the Lord Jesus. And uh, he went on from there. He just graduated from Westminster Seminary. And now he's in, back in New York City working on the streets in a ministry there. And I think back on that guy's life and I'm, oh, no way. But all through those years, he was searching, desperately searching for the truth. His heart was open. And the world is full of people like that. The Matthews, the Eric Sigwards, the other people that you know, the people that live right next door who seem to have no interest whatever, who are involved in all sorts of immoral activities. And God's speaking to them as well. Well, the story doesn't end there. We're told in verse 10 that uh, Matthew threw a party, sort of going away affair, bachelor party, for a few of his old cronies, because he was leaving to follow the Lord. Matthew doesn't tell us that it was in his house. Matthew is characteristically modest about all of his 
achievements through this book. He's the only one, by the way, who even refers to himself as a tax collector. <clears throat> the other gospel writers don't. They just call him Levi. It says that it happened that as he was reclining at table in his house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. These uh, sinners are uh, non-practicing Jews. They were Jews, but in for all intents, they were pagan. They were That's why they were called sinners. They had no interest in religious things. They didn't go to the temple. Didn't go to the synagogues. They just didn't care about spiritual things. And uh, these were all Matthew's cronies. Uh, you couldn't have pictured a more motley group. Uh, this was not a tea party. It was not a Sunday school picnic. You know, men are men at whatever time you meet them. We know that, uh, for instance, uh, uh, men at this time were singing the Song of Solomon as a body song in bars. They really were. We know that from the writing of the writings of the rabbis. So men are men at any time, and I can picture this uh, this scene. You know, uh, Matthew says, "I'll have uh, low and brown steak." And the guy right next to him says, Oh, Matthew, you're a genius. Lawn brown steak. And uh, you know how the talk goes in a situation like that? The Lord wasn't, he wasn't sinning. He wasn't implicated and involved in that way. But he was there. And what bothered the Pharisees and the scribes is that he didn't condemn them. He didn't lecture them. He didn't stand up and say, You need to talk. You stop your filthy talk. You need to... You need to stop your drinking, put out your cigars, and listen to me. Because, you see, that wasn't what concerned the Lord at this point. There was a deeper issue, and that was their separation from God. That was the great sin of which they were guilty. And the Lord wanted to tell them of his forgiveness. So he didn't lecture them. He just ate and drank with them and spent his time talking to them, and he was perfectly at ease. That's the thing you see about the Lord. He could be in one setting with his disciples and be relaxed and at ease. And the next moment he was with non-believers and he could be just as much at ease. And that's what we need to learn. We need to learn how to be the friend of sinners and to, to be able to set non-Christians at ease and not be condemning. The Lord didn't come to condemn. He says he didn't. He came to redeem and to save, to reach out and gather in and point people to the one who forgives, you see. I have a good friend, Matt Prince, who told me one time of a, an incident that that happened to him. He was invited to a friend's house for dinner, and what he didn't know was that he had been set up. His friend had a non-Christian friend, next-door neighbor, who was really hostile toward Christians. He hated them. And Matt was a very outspoken Christian businessman. <laughs> So Matt showed up at dinner, and the first thing this guy said when he walked in the door is, I, uh, I just want you to know that I think Christians are responsible for practically all of the social and, e and ecological ills of, of uh, our world. And Matt said, well, that's an interesting point of view. Tell me, what do you do for a living? And they chatted for a while. And uh, after about five minutes, this man said, and furthermore, going back to my prior comment, I think the Bible is a bunch of garbage. It's a bunch of nonsense. And as for myself, I read the Indian holy books, and that's where I find my uh, strength. 
And I think the Bible has misled more people than any other piece of literature in, in history. And Matt said, well, I suppose we're all entitled to our point of view. Tell me, what sort of uh, outside interest do you have? Do you like to hunt, fish? <laughs> so this went on through the evening. And, you know, most of us by this time would be going for the jugular vein. <clears throat> so throughout the evening, this man made repeated attacks upon Matt and his faith. And as he was walking out the door, he got in his parting shot. He said, I just, uh, I, I hope you understand that I hate Christians and Christianity. And uh, I think this whole thing is a bunch of nonsense. And Matt said, hey, wait a minute, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, all night, he's all night. You've been talking about God and the Bible and about Christians and spiritual things. He says, tell me, what, are you some kind of religious nut or something? And the guy looked at him in disbelief and just cracked up. He started laughing. And, and, uh, and to make a long story short, several weeks later, he called Matt. They had lunch together, and Matt had the privilege of leading this man to the Lord. Now, I'm sure many of you can, can multiply illustrations, but it's that kind of at ease, relaxed way of, of being with non-Christians that wins their heart. Jesus, or Paul said, the servant of God must not be argumentative. That's a command. <laughs> The servant of God must not be argumentative, but kind, gentle, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. That's what it takes to win the heart of the man on the outside, and that's the way Jesus was. He wasn't sternly lecturing them. He wasn't moralizing. He himself didn't enter into their sin, but he was a friend of sinners, loved them just the way they were. But the Pharisees were appalled. And when they saw this, in verse 11, they said to his disciples, Why does your, does your teacher eat with the tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Pharisees said, those people are sick. And Jesus said, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what they are. They're sick, and I'm a doctor. And what kind of doctor would spend his time with the well? I want to tend the sick. I want to be where the hurt is and where the need is. And I will not avoid them. I will, as a matter of fact, avoid you. That's what he means by the last phrase in Verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a note of irony there. I'm going to avoid you self-righteous people, but I'm, I'm happy to spend my time with people who have a need and who recognize it, and you people don't, and you ought to go back, he says, and read your Bibles. <laughs> I always think of Dr. Jack Mitchell. Do you fellows read your Bibles, he says. And that's what Jesus would have said to these Pharisees. Haven't you been reading your Bible? Haven't you read what, what God says in Hosea? That what I want is compassion, covenant love, and loyalty for people, not sacrifice. And here you are involved in all this ri religious rigmarole. You're going to meetings. And he would say to us, you're going to church meetings. And you're teaching Sunday school classes. And you're giving to the church. And you're singing in the choir. But you're self-righteous. 
in your heart, and you're unloving toward people on the outside. He says, you ought to go back and read your Bibles because what God wants is compassion and love for people in need. The man who led my wife, Carolyn, to the Lord, Wally Howard, once uh, was attacked by someone because he happened to identify himself with a group of people that that uh, were not uh, highly regarded. And Wally's comment was, when I stand before the Lord, I would far rather have loved too many people than too few. And I've never forgotten that. If we're going to err on the side of, of loving, I'd rather err on the side of loving too many than loving too few. Some of you may know the story of C.T. Studd, wealthy, prominent a man in, in England, a quite well-known athlete, in Britain, left all of that, gave his money away, went to Africa to live with the poorest tribes. And he put his philosophy in in verse. It goes like this. Some like to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue house within a yard of hell. You see, he understood. And that was Jesus' philosophy as well. And that should be ours. And then finally, in verses 14 through 17, this dowdy old prophet John the Baptist begins to raise his eyebrows and he's wondering what's going on and sends his disciples to talk to Jesus. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? According to the Old Testament, there was one fast per year prescribed on the Day of of Atonement, but the Jews had multiplied these fasts to the point where they averaged two a week. And the Pharisees and, and, and apparently John's disciples were fasting uh, with this frequency. Jesus and his disciples did not, apparently. They obeyed the law. They would have fasted on the Day of Atonement, but that was the only fast that they, uh, that they followed. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. Here's a, a note of prediction here. This is the first uh, idea that we have in the Gospels that Jesus is headed toward the cross. It's veiled, but it's very clear. It's what he has in mind. And he says that my disciples now are feasting because it's like a wedding feast. It's like a party. But the time is coming when, when they'll mourn. Cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. Here's a a note of prediction here. This is the first. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say, But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus says, in effect, to Jesus' disciples, you just don't understand. You think that walking with me is like a funeral. It's not. It's like a feast. It's like a party. It's a blast to follow the Lord. You see? It's fun. It's exciting. You never know what the Spirit of God is going to do. He always operates in unconventional ways. The most creative individual on the face of the earth is the Spirit of God. And if you live your life this way, the Lord says, your life will get exciting. I can't think of anything duller, frankly, than just coming to church and hearing Roper preach, if that's what the Christian life is to you. 
But going out from this place and getting involved in the lives of people around you who have such desperate needs, that puts the fizz in the Pepsi. Or the 7-Up, as the case may be. That's when things get exciting. That's when you begin to, to see God do things that exceed your expectations. A number of years ago when I was working with students, I had a, a good friend who uh, I was trying to get involved in, in ministry with us. His name was uh, Jim Schaffner. And we went into a fraternity house to share Christ. And uh, they had just lost that day the intramural football championship. And they were all drunk, every one of them. And we walked into uh, dinner. We usually had dinner with them, and then we had a meeting after, after dinner. And they were throwing half-gallon cartons of milk across the room, and it was just a zoo. I couldn't believe it. And the closer we got to the meeting, the more terrified I became. I was just scared to death. And finally, the president of the house gets up, and he was so drunk, he couldn't even stand up. He puts his hands on the table, and he almost fell down. And he says, there are two guys here that are going to talk about God. And he sat down. That was my introduction. <laughs> and I said to Jim, Shaf, you're on. He said, no, you're on. <clears throat> and I got up, and my teeth were chattering. I have never been so scared in my entire life. And we started to talk, and I hush fell over that group, and we had one of the best discussions about spiritual things I have ever been involved in. I never saw a bunch of guys sober up so fast. And we had another meeting afterward with a group of interested guys, and a Bible study started out of that group, and a number of men eventually met the Lord. All of that, though, was, that's really what the Lord did as a result. What excited me is that as we walked out of that meeting, Schaffner said, wow, that was the greatest experience of my life. Let's do it again. Because he had tasted the real thing. Now Jesus says that's the taste of new wine. And you can't pour that old wine back into the old forms. It's like trying to put new wine into old wineskins. The old wineskins don't have any elasticity and they break. And you, you spoil the whole thing. So you can't pour the new life of the Spirit of God, that exciting, unconventional way of living into the old forms. You have to be creative. You never know what God is going to do next. So don't stifle it and frustrate it by trying to pour it into old forms. It won't work, he says. But when you begin to live as God intends us to live, out on the edge, you'll discover that God will create new forms, new ways. The sort of thing that Irene was telling us about last week when she had an opportunity to share Christ with her neighbors. God will give you the proper form to convey the message. That's up to him. So uh, take a sinner out to lunch this week, will you? Call your wife up and say, guess who's coming home for dinner? Are you women? Look for creative ways to share your faith in Christ with the people. Don't write anybody off. Don't write yourself off. Just begin to act in faith. And I can't go away without saying that if you're here and you feel like you're a sinner, Jesus is your friend. Maybe you've never, never met the Lord Jesus, or maybe this past week you just feel that you've sinned an awful lot. Well, I want you to know that he's your friend this morning. I have a good friend, Edith Richards, who, when she tells her testimony, says that she it came as a result, she was about 10 years old, and the pastor was reading the passage in Luke 15, that one of the parallels to this, to this chapter where Jesus says, uh, or they said of Jesus, he receives sinners and eats with them. 
And the old King James Version used to put it, He receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And Edith was sitting down there. And she thought, Me too! How about that? And, you see, that's what the Lord is saying. He receives sinners and John and Mary and Sue and, and David with him. So just uh, take him the way you are. Okay? You don't need to clean up the house. I know you ladies like to clean up when you have a visitor, but the Lord doesn't expect you to do that. Just receive him the way you are. Because he loves you the way you are. He wants to forgive you the way you are. And come into your life. And make you the kind of person you long to be. Well, let's stand together and pray, shall we? Father, how great you are. How great is your love, your forgiveness, your tolerance for us. Thank you that you're our friend. In Jesus' name, amen. As most of you know, the, the Levites now are living uh, among the trios in Suriname. Claude went back with the New Testament completed. And uh, he's giving us a report on what's happened since he went back. And uh, actually, this tape was sent before the current uh, political problems in Suriname. As I'm sure most of you know, the uh, non-commissioned officers in the army overthrew the existing government, and things are very unstable there, and there's some possibility of a communist takeover, and the Levitts are really in a very difficult situation. I just got a letter last week from Claude saying that... that uh, Though they themselves are not in any danger, there is a possibility that they could be cut off from supplies that have to be flown into them from uh, uh, from the cities. And if things get any more difficult, they might have to go into the bush with the trio Indians. And they can live off of the land, but uh, it's, that's not what they would prefer. So we want to listen to this tape, and then we ask Dan Brown to come and, and uh, pray for them. Uh, dear friends at Cole, this is Claude Levitt. I'm in Brazil with the YY Indians. Barbara has returned to Suriname, and I'll soon be going over there too, but I've been having a great time here with the YYs and teaching them. And uh, just recently, in fact, we still have three Atrawadi uh, young boys here at the village now. Just recently, two groups of Atrawadis one group of 11, another group of 18 were here. And they uh, were here during Christmas. And I want you to hear some of their uh, music. Sound like Saturday night in Frisco? Well, it comes from the darkest part of the jungles of, of Brazil and South America. It's these Atrawadi Indians that we've been trying to reach now for several years. And uh, we've come as we're closer than we've ever been before. And we need you people there at Cole to pray for the Atrawadi Indians that they will soon come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be delivered from their world of darkness. They've seen the lives of the YYs and they're different and they, they're attracted to them. And that's the way the gospel should be lived through all of our lives to attract others to it. We had a wonderful fall uh, September, October, November in Suriname and there we 
had the dedication of the Trio New Testament. Uh, I feel it's been one of the most fruitful times of our lives when we've really been able to, to teach and we've had the Word of God to teach from and the people have really enjoyed it. The dedication itself was a real blessed time. And then after the dedication, we came to Brazil to uh, visit Norman, and Norman is getting along the best he's ever gotten along in school. We certainly thank the Lord uh, for that. And thank you for your prayers for him, and do keep praying for him as well. And uh, then we spent Christmas with Larry and Claudia, and uh, there in Bovista, Brazil. And then on the 8th of January, Claudia and Larry and Barbara and Norman flew to Suriname, where Norman had to get a new visa, his visa had uh, run out, uh, and then he returned to Brazil on the 12th to start his school again. I'll soon be going down to make another visit with him and then back to Suriname, and we'll be starting our Bible school in February. On February 11th, and we'll go for four months at four different stations, so we'll need your prayers for that. Claudia and Larry have returned to the States from Paramaribo and are hoping to get a permanent visa from there. We've had several couples here that have tried to change a status here in Brazil and have been turned down and have had to leave the country. So the mission is thought best that they go to the States and try to apply from there. They hope to be back in a few months. And will you pray that God will grant them a visa? Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support, too. And uh, let us hear from you folks there in Cole.